Uh, Jesus didn't have a problem with people that was in the streets. He had a problem with religious people. How can I help anybody when I'm not even when I was not even able to help my own son? I would never do that. I would never do that. And I became that in a matter of minutes when they took my pain pills away. And I said, I'm not where I want to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. Ugh. This is Faith in Your Recovery. I am Randy Davis. Welcome to the battle. joining with us today. We feel like we've got a lot to offer, a lot to share, and we're excited that you're taking time out of your busy schedule to be involved. Yes, I'm Randy Davis, former pastor, founder, executive director of A Better Life, Brianna's Hope. We are participant-driven, faith-based, and compassion-filled support and recovery movement for those battling the battle with substance use disorder slash addiction. We're thankful that you've joined us. We want to share with you today something special. Have a friend along, a gentleman I met a couple of years ago and have been involved with his efforts in recovery. Carl Lazar, welcome. Thank you, Randy. Good to have you with us. Listen, Carl, uh, here at Faith in Your Recovery, we try to try to help folks experience as many things about the effort, about the journey as we possibly can. I know you come from some experiences that you'll share with the folks here in a few minutes, but that's past tense. We get that. We also want to hear about the present tense, Carl, the impact you're making in the recovery effort, and we look forward to what you have to share. So what would you like to tell the folks from early childhood? Tell them a little bit about who Carl was in those elementary, junior high years. Uh, well, I was uh, born to a single mother. Um, so my father wasn't around, broken home, and I think a lot of that um, kind of created the monster that I was for a while, uh, that sense of abandonment. Um, growing up, I was a semi-good child, <laughs> um, involved in sports and really active. I think my high school years is where things kind of started that free thought process, doing what I want to do instead of what society tells us to do at that early age did your dad play any role in your life um nothing positive other than you know custody battle and things like that uh the last time i had spoken to him was when i was about 15 years old um wasn't a good interaction uh but hope and god changes things uh i actually have a better relationship with him today um than i have in Almost 40 years. That's so. incredible. That's good to hear. And like I say, God does bring change. Uh, we've got to be in the place to receive it and play our part in it. But it's always exciting to hear those moments. So let's move a little further into your life. You just got done saying you used to be in athletics and sports in early age. But then you, it sounds like you started to make some choices that weren't the best for your future. Uh, yeah, that... It's probably a soft way to say it. Um, I, when I went into high school, I, I went through public elementary and middle school and, you know, very advanced classes. When I went into high school, I was in a magnet program in a public school. So it was a complete culture shock, you know, class of 32 to class of hundreds. Um, so very quickly, the dynamic for me changed. Uh, I'm a good chameleon. I tend to get along with everyone and 
can't blame anyone else but myself, but fell in with people that weren't, you know, doing everything right. And uh, I'm a leader, not a follower. So, you know, I just started doing things that probably weren't definitely weren't legal, um, definitely weren't <laughs> looked highly upon as far as behaviors. I was expelled out of the first high school I was in as a sophomore. So I was probably 15 years old. I was put in a reform school and then went to a second high school, which is where I actually graduated. So, so Carl, what was it that you think attracted you to those kind of decisions and being involved with those kind of behaviors? Um, I, I, I wouldn't blame it on peer pressure because we all have the freedom of choice, you know. I think a lot of it was just that need to belong. Um, machismo, bravado, whatever you want to call it, that that need to belong is what kind of attracted me to the people I was associating with. That happens for all of us. We're going to find where we think we fit or where we want to fit, then make ourselves fit, whether it's a good fit or not. Yeah. Wasn't a good fit in those days. <laughs> Tell us about some of that. What, uh, yeah, what took place? What was life like? Uh, well, I started drinking heavily. You know, I would bring a thermos full of orange juice and vodka to school and call it orange juice. And really, you know, I was getting drunk every day. Um, what age was that? I was what year? 15, 16 years old. Okay. Uh, sophomore, junior yeah. year kind of thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, please. And as it continued, I mean, obviously it escalated, right? Different substances, different things, um, late nights, you know, that whole nine. Uh, I was always the type that no matter what I did go to school, my attendance was good, but that doesn't mean I was maybe fully cognizant of where I was at. Um, but I could see now looking back on it, that's really where... I started using substances as far as my alcoholism, alcoholism and addiction. Um, I can look back even further and see my alcoholic behaviors whenever I was a child, you know, temper tantrums when we don't get what we want and why, why don't I deserve this, the, the type of stuff that I've learned over my recovery the past decade. So, Yeah. Okay. Uh, I almost wanted to call you a functioning, but then with more that you said, it sounded like maybe you were more attending than functioning. Is that accurate? Yeah, that would probably be I. That would probably be the best description. I was there, but I don't know if I was all there. Your you know? body was there, regardless <laughs> yeah. of what else was. Yeah. You said that led you into other substances, like what? Uh, well, smoking pot, um, pharmaceuticals, and different things. Uh, after I got expelled from my first high school, I was the the justifying alcoholic. I would not touch anything that was not alcohol. I would literally try and coach you on why drugs were bad for you while I was getting drunk. So it was very hypocritical. I can see that now um, because I thought a certain substance was the problem. But I have, I mean, in... My history, I don't think there's anything I haven't tried when it comes to substances. For a while, you were very selective, uh, regardless of recognizing the harm it was doing. Yeah, that legal versus illegal argument, not really understanding the disease, because I was young. I didn't, you know, I didn't know I was sick. I just figured I was partying. What was, what were some of the darkest moments for you during that time? Uh, I mean, obviously, yeah. Um, mother being completely 
uh, anger would not be the right word, but for the podcast, probably the right word. Um, and just being in an isolated environment that I wasn't used to. I was in a reform school. Um, I went to a completely new high school mid-year. Uh, and, you know, that whole anxiety of new people, new school in my teenage years, I mean, it was that was pretty dark because I didn't know how to handle it. Um, again, I'm a good chameleon, so I made it through. Uh, the fear of not being able to go to college, the fear of having that on my record and it affecting my education. My mom was big on education. I'm the first in my family that ever went to college. That was her goal for me. Um, so at 15 years old, when that looked like it was thrown out the window, needless to say, the home life was not as smiley and and lovey as you would expect. Let's say I can go back and speak to one of your teachers during that time, okay? How would they have described Carl? What would they have had to say about him? Um, probably very explicit words. Uh, I was, I was not... I, again, I was there, but I wasn't, you know, focused. So I wouldn't say I was a class clown or anything like that, but definitely disruptive, um, definitely nonchalant and not caring uh, about, you know, the institution of education. I get Disrespectful would be the easiest way to say it. That, that fits with everything else you're saying there. <laughs> I, I guess they were probably thinking, here's a young man with potential, because you wouldn't have made it to college and made it through if you didn't have potential, but someone who was wasting that potential at that time. Is that accurate? Uh, there were, yeah, there were a few of the the teachers in the system that probably thought that and still fought for me even with the damage I had caused because I have a brain, I mean a good brain, and but I wasn't utilizing it. I was choosing to do things that, you know, most educated people don't do. So. Did you care about that battle within yourself, knowing I've got this potential, but I, I'm turning this way? Was that totally the disease? Help us out here. I don't think I actually sat back and recognized that. Like, I, I don't think that kind of crossed my mind. It was more of a, I'm existing, and this is what I do on these days, and this is who I hang out with. And I, I don't I wasn't going through a process of any kind of soul searching or, you know, looking internally. It was more of just, I exist. This is what I do. Yeah, there wasn't a thought process of I might throw my life out. Not at, not at that age. Okay. You know, I was a teenager, you know, wild teenager. There wasn't even denial, probably, because <laughs> why deny what's not happening? Yeah, yes? a, lot, a lot of justification. Sure. You know, a lot sure. of justification. That fits well. Uh, those were somewhat your... It sounds like mid-high school years. Did you graduate with the same kind of attitude, the same kind of actions, behaviors, or had a change started to take place? Uh, a change definitely started to take place. Like, as I said, when I got expelled, I stayed away from anything that was illegal because I figured that's what the problem was. If I get in trouble, it's because it's illegal. Uh, I drank a lot, um, weekend drinker, and... I did finish high school. I was able to get things back on track for my scholastics and take my SAT and everything. And I got, I don't know how still to this day, but I did get accepted to pretty much every college in Florida um, whenever I graduated high school. Is that school. where you were living at that time? That's was where that I'm in from. Florida? Okay. Yeah, I was born and raised in Florida. I moved to Indiana a little over five years ago. So um, at that point, I had almost had a 
I guess, a self-reflection time period. Um, I chose a college where my high school sweetheart was going and only one of my friends was going because I was fully aware that if I went to a school with all my buddies that I was hanging out with, it probably wouldn't end well. I, I figured I'd be dead if I, you know, had gone there and, and partied with them. So I did make at least one educated decision in that time period um, to choose to try and venture out someone on my own and start fresh. So That's trite as it might be. The old people, places, and things rears its head again, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I, don't, I, I did well in college for probably the first semester. I went in pre-med. Um, then I realized how hard pre-med really is. Looks easier on TV, right? And after the first semester and breaking up with the, the girlfriend, I tailspinned. I went right back to where I was, um, drinking, using, you know, it, it, it happened pretty quickly. Was it uh, using a multiple number of drugs or, you know, obviously alcohol seems like it was your drug of choice throughout all of this, or at least your drug of doom, even <laughs> if it wasn't your drug of choice. The easiest to get. No, um, I would say, yeah, alcohol uh, was definitely the biggest part in that time period. I started uh, smoking pot again and, you know, pharmaceuticals here and there. That was probably the end of my freshman year in college. Um, I'm somewhat intelligent, so... If I'm using and all my friends are using, then I can use mine for free if I sell it to my friends. That was my mindset. Um, so I started a absolutely worthless rabbit hole career of uh, trying to be a drug dealer. And I did that through college. It's what paid for college. Um, my mom is the type that when she draws the line on anything, she drew the line. And she wasn't going to help me after my first semester. I had flunked the class uh, and I was on my own. And it's kind of what I did. I mean, I still went to school. I definitely manipulated my college schedule to where my party life was more important. I don't think I think after my freshman or sophomore year, I did not have a class before like noon. You know, just that if I'm hungover, I can still make it to class mentality. Really? Looking back on it. <laughs> not so wise, but no. at the moment. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you made mention there's something about your mom. When she drew the line, she drew the line. Yeah. Give some advice to other mothers who may be listening right now that perhaps are dealing with their own Carl. Uh, oh, God help you. Um, I would say that from my experience only, yes. uh, the tough love worked for me. The I'm not going to help you, you're cut off, get it together, uh, actually was beneficial. My mom was never the one that justified my behaviors or pitied me, even even for being an addict. Um, it was my responsibility and my family. You own up to your responsibility. You do what it takes to fix it. And that's how it was. So she was she was stern. My whole life growing up, That's she was stern, stern mother. So what's the... The phrase, sentence of advice you'd give to other mothers right now who may be battling what your mom was battling. If you love the addict, you're going to bury them. You have to separate. You cannot enable. You cannot co-sign because I, I deal with it for a living now. And if they have an out, we are definitely going to take it. 
That's... You will find that Achilles heel, <laughs> that spot in the heart or wherever it's at, right? Yeah. Yeah, we will. We'll find a, a good way to talk you into letting us stay on the couch for the night or, or something and just cause more damage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you made the comment about the dangers of enabling, and obviously that's battle so many fight. They're, they're not ready to... For that tough love that you also mentioned, that it's easier not to deal with it than to face it and deal with in that parent uh, position. Well, I I think it's hard as a parent anyways to see your child, you know, hurting themselves, damaging things, and you just, you, you have that motherly or fatherly instinct that you can fix it. You can't. And, you know, that you want to love them. But you can love them to death. I mean, I, I've watched it happen. It, it's sad. And all I can say is if you draw the lines, if you have your boundaries, stand on those boundaries. Um, because we as alcoholics and addicts are boundary crossers. We will find the the weak spot and we will utilize it until we can any longer and then try and find another one. So, yeah, I mean, if you put your foot down, keep it down. You've got to be consistent in your behaviors at all times as a parent, whether it's something as heavy as the addiction issue or it's just that child that won't do their homework, whatever the case is. I agree. They've got to know you're going to be there with that same luck each time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, how— how did you feel toward your mom during that time frame where she had said, no, nah, it's not going to happen here, and you found yourself having to find other ways? I don't know that I want to say survive, but at least at the level you were living at. Uh, well, I think that I, it was kind of ingrained in me because even at a young age, when I got expelled from high school, my mom kicked me out of the house, 15. Figure it out. Figure your life out. If you're going to act like this, then you think you're a grown man? Go figure it out. Um, College, same thing. I'm not going to help you even financially. Figure it out. Um, When I got arrested and got sober, I'm not going to bond you out. Figure it out. So that was kind of how she raised me in general. So it wasn't I I wasn't resentful towards her. I think it was commonplace for me um, growing up to to know that mom is definitely not going to, you know, say it's okay, baby. You know, she, she wasn't that type ever with me, and I think that helped me build my character and my strength. Well, you knew where you stood at all times. You didn't have to wonder, <laughs> did you? Yeah, I, there was plenty of times I didn't pick up the phone and call her for nothing. You yeah, know? <laughs> I am sure that was the case. So then what happened along the end of your college career? What did life look like? Let me ask you a question. How old are you now, Carl? Uh, I am 40 years old. I turned 40 in September. So we're looking at 15 plus years ago. Yes, 17, 18 years ago as a college senior, give or take. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I just wanted to get a little context for the folks. Okay. So uh, after my pre-med experiment, I decided I was going to go pre-law. I studied legal studies with a double minor in psychology and criminal justice. Um, being the really smart man I am, I decided I was going to quit school with a semester left, right? I had like three credits to graduate and thought it'd be a good idea. I'm just going to stop going to school. Um, my mom threatened to disown me. 
I was the, you know, the first person in the family to ever go to college. My family's not quitters. Um, you know, things that were ingrained in me. And if you don't finish, don't ever call me again. So I took a semester off. I went back and finished college. Um, I had talked to my guidance counselor, you know, when we do things we're not supposed to, we don't think people see it. <laughs> but we were wrong. Um, I went to my guidance counselor and I said, look, you know, I'm studying pre-law. I want to go to law school. And she looked me dead in the face and she said, you're going to have to stop doing everything you're doing. You're going to have to take on X amount of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans and focus on your studies only for the next three to four years. Uh, a 24-year-old kid with a lot of money and vehicles and whatever he wants in life isn't going to hear that. So I graduated, mailed the diploma to my mom, and never followed through with law school. Um, I just didn't. I, um, why? You know, it's kind of how I thought about things. Uh, I ended up, I was living in Orlando at the time. I went to UCF. That's where I graduated. And I ended up moving back down to Palm Beach County uh, to be close to my little brother, um, this is where I realized I probably had a problem and my intentions were good, but my actions didn't match. So I moved back to Palm Beach County. I got a home. I said, I'm done. I'm not doing any illegal activity anymore. I'm going to try and not use anything. And I think I lasted 90 days. I think that's was about the length. I wasn't counting back then. So, um, and then I went back to what I was doing, and that's kind of where my tailspin really started as far as my downfall of, of use and, you know, things like that. Hit us with that a little harder. Tell us a little more about that tailspin, and then we'll start to come out of that and move toward the mountaintop. Okay. I'm very good at turning, you know, quarter-million-dollar homes into, you know, crack house, I guess, is the, for the best word for it. Um so I, I started doing what I knew how to do. I mean, I started hanging out with people that were in the criminal lifestyle. I started selling drugs, using drugs. Uh, I lived about a mile and a half from my family at the time. And the sad thing is I saw them more when I was living a couple hours away than I was living a mile and a half from them. Um, I regret that because my full intentions were... I'm going to move back to be there for my brother as he grows up. We're 16 years apart. Um, be there for my mother. And I wasn't, even though I was in close proximity, I, I physically wasn't. Um, that continued on for quite a while. Uh, I ended up basically the, the real estate market crashed. I lost the home I was living in. I uh, ended up staying in another place that my mom had that was an investment property and I got introduced to opiates, and the roller coaster took off. Um, that is where it got really dark for me. It, it got so bad that within about a two- to three-month period, I had a fully furnished apartment that I had even sold my bed and was sleeping on the floor. Um, the bank, I hadn't made monthly payments, so the bank was repossessing it and changed the locks, and I was breaking into the home I was living in just to sleep. It got dark. Um, first time in my life that my mom helped me, she brought me back to her house, detoxed me. Um, man, I may have lasted two weeks, and then I was thrown out again. Um, I had gone through this complete cycle of justifying behaviors, thinking I was okay. Uh, I was about 
25, and I was working under the table washing dishes at an Italian restaurant, and I was content making $8 an hour because my addiction was being fed. I wasn't sick during the day. Um, I have a college degree. Like, that's the insanity that my disease took me to. I was staying in a, a, a terrible place that was one of the waitresses' apartments that was just come and go, people coming and going, and she used. And at that point in my life, I was okay. I didn't even have a cell phone that was connected. Um, that's the first time I attempted real recovery. My mother picked me up on my stepfather's birthday, and they dragged me to a treatment center. And I got scholarship to a treatment center. I wasn't ready. I thought that selling drugs was just a job. I thought that I just liked to party on the weekends, um, which was not true. So I was very good at justifying and telling the therapist, as long as I stay away from opiates, I'll be okay. Even my mother thought that. My mom thought I could drink like a normal human being. She, she wasn't like me. She's not an addict, never was. I've seen her drunk once in my entire life. Um, at a wedding, totally justifiable. So she didn't understand the disease. She was definitely in CODA most of my life. And um, my Explain that to folks who may not know what CODA is. Codependence Anonymous. Yes. My mom loved to love addicts. Um, my stepfather who raised me was an addict. Um, my father definitely struggled uh, I don't know the history too much. I haven't gotten that far in the relationship with him. So she was she had a bad picker. That's the easiest way. That's what she used to say. I've got a bad picker. Even my brother's father, addict. So she was in CODA, um, Codependence Anonymous, for most of my life. So she knew that aspect of the disease, but not mine. So in her mind, if I drank and stayed away from the hard stuff, it'd be okay. Um, I, I ran with that. I did a 30-day treatment. I fell in love with the love of my life in rehab. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> I went to a halfway house. I started a job. I bounced back quick. That's the crazy thing. I can go from homeless to a good bank account within 30, 60 days. It's just how I am. I bounce back quick. Um, I ended up leaving the halfway house and moving in with the girl. Um, she relapsed, so I relapsed. And it didn't end well. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but it definitely tests your masculinity when you have to put a restraining order on a woman. It was definitely not a good thing for me. So that was my first go around at sobriety. Uh, I started a company with my family at that point. We were selling health insurance and life insurance. I became a licensed insurance agent, everything by the book, everything legal. Um, people don't understand that you can make money legally and be comfortable. At least I didn't back then, you know, and the company went well. We, we grew within a, a year, year and a half to 23 plus employees and making good money and Obamacare. There was talks of Obamacare starting the health insurance companies kind of cut commissions and things like that. And the, we basically had no choice but to dwindle the company at that point. I went back to doing what I know how to do and never, never is good. I had my foot on the ground again, kind of like I did whenever I was 15. As long as I stay away from opiates, I'll be okay. I don't want to see them. I don't want to be around people on them. Um, 
It's probably the biggest lie I've ever told myself. It sounds like most probably what I was thinking today. The idea of even if you choose the lesser of evils, it's still an evil. Oh, yeah. And it's going to work on you. It's going to work in you. I've noticed a pattern of behaviors here. You might be there, but you're not. You weren't present. You know, like at school, mm-hmm. you would show up, but that would be about all you'd put into it. Then you made the comment of how you moved back close to your family intentionally within a mile and a half. Right, in yeah. that about what you said, but yet you didn't see them any more than when they were hours away. Yeah. So, what brought you around to the point after after that spiral, after some of those decisions? What was the first step that you recall moving you forward in a positive, healthy, promising way? Um, getting arrested and facing life in prison. That was my motivator, as sad as it is. So when I went to treatment, I was, the first time, I was homeless living out of a duffel bag. I had reached a physical bottom, but mentally and emotionally I was content because I wasn't sick. I could feed my habit for the day. I got arrested when I was 29. I I stayed away, so to give you some insight, like when the insurance company closed, I thought I could drink like a gentleman. Today, I realize that, again, it is not the substances I put in me. It's me because I drank just like I used. The substitution does not work. Didn't for me. And the big book talks about that, that, you know, you think you can control your drinking. Try it. I tried it. I read it. I tried it. I failed miserably. I don't recommend it. Um, So I drank for about a year and didn't touch other stuff. And then within 30 days of picking up hard drugs, I was tailspinning. Within three months, I was arrested for uh, two counts of armed trafficking and five possession charges on September, not September, March 17th, 2011. It was those seven charges. Okay. (coughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, two counts of armed trafficking and five possession. I looked like a Wal- all Walgreens pharmacy. It was ridiculous. It was St. Patty's Day. I, I probably have some Irish in me, but I'm not Irish. But it was a good excuse for me to you celebrate. You didn't care. Yeah. St. <laughs> Patty's Day. I'm going to celebrate. Yeah. I don't know why. Um, but that, I think, was the catalyst of my life really changing. So I still had physical things. I was I had an apartment or well, a buddy's house where I was renting a room. I still had a vehicle. I still had clothes. It wasn't like my first bot. I still had a TV and a bed. Um, so it was different. It was emotional and mental. And I went into to court, and I had no bond. They weren't going to let me out. Um, I didn't know anything about the system at the time, and my mom came and visited me, and I asked her what I should do, and she said pray, because her mindset, I was 29 at the time, and it was March, my birthday's at the end of September, her mindset was she was going to teach me a lesson, she wasn't going to get me out of jail until after my 30th birthday. This is when things really changed, because even though I hadn't been around for my brother, He was younger. He would have been older than I was at that time the next time I'd see him breathing free air. That shocked me. Um, I prayed. I went to court, and God intervened heavily. My judge was on vacation. The judge that was on the bench was all about second chances. He court-mandated me to a halfway house 
reduced my bond. Um, I, Let me interrupt for a minute. How many years would you have been facing? I scored out to 46 years minimum mandatory. That's where it started. 46 okay. years to life. Okay. Uh, Florida's laws, I had a gun on me too, so Florida's laws are a little harsher when you have a weapon, a firearm. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so he looked at me and he said, do you think you have a problem? And I said, yeah, I mean, everything was pretty much for me. So he mandated me on house arrest to, to a halfway house on pretrial. I, it's, this is how my addict brain works. As soon as I knew I was getting out, I had the thought process, I will go get high one last time, then report to the halfway house. God intervened again. Um, they released me from jail, uncuffed me, and put me in the director's vehicle. Saved my life. Because no one is going to use and then go report. It just doesn't happen. Um, I I ran with it. I, I listened to the people that came before me. Um, I got a sponsor who had five years clean at the time. I followed his every direction. I called him before I would change my pants, okay? It was that serious. I was trying to relearn my life and, and take guidance instead of doing it my way. And hanging around the people that were actually trying to change, not the ones that were just going through the motions to make it look good. So you were starting to get serious at that point. You were becoming present and for real. You were listening to what you were being taught. Uh, you were making up for some of those lost days in school, it sounds like, through your sponsor, their wisdom, their experience, their guidance, their mentorship, their giving, their caring. And all the time, that prayer here, that prayer there started to bring about change. Go ahead. Tell us more about that change. Uh, the book talks about it being an educational variety. I didn't have a white light moment. It was as I was working through my steps of, I worked AA, even though I use drugs. Um, that's what my sponsor worked. So it was little just hints of change in me as I went through my steps. I had always had a belief in God. Um, I, <laughs> this is going to sound crazy guys. I thought while I was out there using and doing what I was doing, if I didn't pray, then God would not care. I know today that that is ridiculous to say. It's why I'm laughing saying it. But that was my mindset. Um, I knew he was always there. I watched him intervene in my life because by all rights and purposes, I shouldn't even be sitting here today. I fought tooth and nail um, to change. I spent three and a half years in that halfway house on pretrial, I spent a life savings on an attorney, um, but I did the work. And by the grace of God, I didn't end up in prison. You know, I, I ended up with a lot of house arrest and a lot of probation, but I didn't end up in prison. And that was huge for me. I love the phrase there, I did the work. Uh, whether we're talking about addiction, alcoholism, or anything else, I've always been of the belief God might give you the field to farm, but he won't drive your tractor. Uh, as weak as that may sound, I think it's parallel to that. You know, he'll give you the shovel. He won't dig the hole. Yeah. We do a good enough job digging our own holes, right? I, yes, I like that. Yeah, you can't sit at home on the couch looking for a job and expect it to jump through your window. you got to put some work in, you know? And then you 
got to show up when it comes, <laughs> yeah. right? Even if it does jump through yeah. the window, you got to be there at 8 a.m. that next morning. So go ahead. Help us continue this climb. Um. So after all of that, like, I, I loved – once I got through my steps and I had my spiritual awakening, I wanted to scream from the rooftops that – there is some sort of solution for people like me. I started that first by sponsoring other guys. Uh, I would say in the beginning, I was almost addicted to recovery. I had six sponsees. I was going to meetings every day, speaking at detoxes, and it was starting to affect my home life. At that time, I had a uh, girlfriend that I was, I ended up getting engaged to and a daughter we were raising. And I had to tailor back how much time I was spending with other people and not my family. I needed to learn some balance. I still wanted everyone to get help. I wanted everyone to have an opportunity. So I knocked on so many doors and most got shut in my face because I still had a pending case um, to work in the field. Everybody thought I was going to prison anyways. They saw my charges. We don't want to waste the money training you. I had one company that uh, gave me an opportunity, and I can tell you I soared. Within 40 days, they had promoted me to uh, overseeing all of their housing. I was salaried. I had, you know, cell phone paid for, apartment paid for. I mean, it was like, in my mind, the best job I would ever have, right? I was making about 50 grand a year and a bunch of stuff taken care of. They decided to pull out of Florida because it wasn't a good financial investment for them. They had a huge facility in Utah, like 200 people. And they their science experiment in Florida didn't work. So within a two-week period, I went from what I thought would be the best job in my life to unemployed. It didn't crush me. There were other people I worked with in the in that business that were friends of mine that were in recovery that relapsed because of it, because their life was based off employment. It should never be. Um, I'm a survivor. I had a man who was gracious enough to see something in me that I didn't see in myself. That man spent about the next two years with me. I was sitting by his side and he taught me everything of the industry from pulling permits for remodeling to writing rules and regulations to credentialing treatment centers to marketing and billing and client care. And it was almost like I got paid to go to college again is really what it was like. And the man did that out of the kindness of his heart for me. And I kind of took off. I started consulting for treatment centers. So I was the guy that came in and made sure your building was good and your paperwork was good. And you get a license on the wall and I moved to the next. And very quickly, I went from what I thought was the best job I'd ever have at around 50K a year to 65 to 75 to 100. Um, not that financial should make us. But just to give people some insight on how quickly, within a year, I was able to grow by, by hard work and dedication. I had a friend of mine I knew from childhood who was a therapist up here in Indiana. I was flying up here to try and market and give resources to people for the place I had built for someone else in Florida. And every community and county I went to up here on my five, six trips, uh, sounds great. When are you going to do something up here? And I took probably the biggest leap of faith in my life. Um, my mom thought I was crazy. Everyone around me thought I was crazy. I'm a Florida boy. I had seen a flurry of snow once in my life, right? So I moved up here in a September. And I helped open Bridges of Hope. 
That was the first place I came up here for um, after scouting the area. And I started my life up here. Um, I parted ways with them probably six, eight months into the project. I didn't know what I was going to do. Good friend of both of ours, Skip Ackerman, came to me and said, your expertise, this community needs a strong women's program. I'm a man. I can't run a women's program. Let me talk to the boss. So I went and talked with my fiance and said, do you want to run this? Because I can't. And we decided to open Grace House. Um, We had a plan and a vision. We had no way to do it. At the time, my mom was dying from cervical cancer. She had been fighting it for years. It, It went away and it came back. And she called me one day and said, I'm thinking of selling my life insurance. You'll have no inheritance, but this may keep me alive. The time I was on probation and couldn't just leave the state, I thought I'd never see my mom again. Um, told her, do whatever it takes because the money's not as important as you are. So she sold it, her life insurance to, to pay for experimental treatment. And then about three months later, I don't know how I didn't have a heart attack, but she called me and she said, I want to invest in something that's going to be a legacy for me and I want to help people like you. And that's where it started. I may get emotional. I apologize. No need. We we had the vision of two homes, uh, help about 20 women. Today, we have, I don't know how many homes. We help men and women. We have a treatment center. But that was her, her goal. And the first time she trusted me with anything other than a roof over my head. Um, we worked hard. The first year was rough. Uh, we, man, we detox people cold turkey, Anderson Center, using every community resource we could find. That's around the time that I had met Linda DeHaven and and been put in contact with your organization. And it was a struggle the first couple of years, um, just trying to get the gist of it. The rules and regulations I use are the same ones I went through that helped me get sober. So that way I can tell a client, I did it. You can do it. It can work. It worked for me. It didn't work for a bunch of other people that were around me, but it worked for me. Hopefully, it'll work for you. And, I, and I'm not asking you to do anything I didn't have to do. Uh, one of my visions was to do things, to provide things that I wasn't provided in early recovery that would have made life easier because we don't really understand, like, certain things just make life easier. Wi-Fi, laundry in the house, you know, little things that, that make our lives easier that we take for granted. So uh, we tried to do that to provide an atmosphere of healing and, and recovery for them. And it kind of took off. Um, this year, well, 2021, because I track everything, our success rate as far as graduations for our women um, and sobriety still was around 35%, which for me is astronomical. Um, typical success rates for people like me are 3%. So something is going right. It's working for those who will work it. Yes. There you go. <laughs> uh, that, that's one of those keys. We go back to the importance of our investment. Somebody else can give us the opportunity, but until we invest, there will be no return on on what you put into it. Yeah. Uh, you've come a long way, obviously, and you've made an impact in a lot of lives. What is one word of thanks you'd like to give? Uh, from where you were to where you are, whether it's, pardon me, a belated one to your mother, whether it's a thank you to God, combination thereof, go ahead. Everything. 
I mean, th I'm thankful to God for giving me another opportunity and changing my life. I'm thankful for my mom having faith in me and all the people along the way. I didn't do this myself. You made a comment earlier about the gentleman who just was attached to your hip, or you were attached to his for a couple of years, who opened your eyes and opened some doors that certainly opened your thinking. And uh, we need to be those people for others who are struggling. And obviously, in your own way, that's, that's what you're doing. So we'll get ready to wrap this up. But as we do, let's go back to the title of this podcast, Faith in Your Recovery. Give me your definition of that or what that title means to you. There's obviously not a right answer. There's your answer, and that's what we want. I'm merely a vessel for God's work. That's how I look at my faith. Every day I wake up, ask him to guide me. This is not human. This is not me putting in the effort. This is God guiding my directions, and that's where my faith lies today. Yes, yes. I'm going to hit you with one that'll hit the hard here. <laughs> oh, boy. Make a comment to mom. Uh, well, I know she's listening. Um, thank you for having faith in me. I could not be here if it wasn't for you. That's, that covers it. Yeah. That covers it. God, Randy, why you got to do that? <laughs> <laughs> I know the folks out there would want the same thing, okay? Yeah. And she deserves that. I mean, it's tough, you know, losing yeah. someone you love and someone who obviously loved you that much, that they were willing to take that risk. And I, you use the word legacy Regardless of what the term may be, one for her benefit, it was for yours and the benefit of others. And that's powerful. That's called sacrifice. And that was, you know, what Christ was about and obviously what she was about. Yes, Any last was. statement or comment you'd like to make, Carl, in closing? Uh, if you're in a dark place and you don't think you can do this, if a train wreck like me could, you definitely can. Reach out to the right people. Uh, reach your hand out. There's help. Keep reaching out. Maybe that first one's not the one. Doesn't mean the second one won't be. I always like to say that your victory can be just around the corner. It can be that next challenge. It can be after that next fall. It, it's there. Don't give up until you get it. Yeah, I bumped my head more than once to get here. So. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's going to take that. That's called life. Yeah. That's called the experience. Well, folks, wow. Thank you for being with us today here on Faith in Your Recovery. We look forward to having you with us again. Have a wonderful day. God bless. And hey, by all means, stay in the battle. Don't give up on yourself and don't give in to the urge. Your answer, your healing, your recovery may be in our next episode. Have faith in your recovery by having faith in yourself, your journey, and above all, God. Believe and stay in the fight.